Even if God created only two genders, does that mean that we have to identify with them? What if our real identity has nothing to do with gender? Today, in our Prabhupada moment, also we'll look at the story of Again Become a Mouse, and we'll say some words on the lyrics of Kirk Franklin's Love Theory song. Hello, hello, I'm uh, Cyril War, also known as Chandrasekhar, and I want to welcome you to Atma Vision, a sacred space where we grow spiritually together by looking at ourselves and looking at the world through the lens of the mystical and scientific teachings found in the ancient scriptures of the Bhakti Yoga tradition. Um, on the theme of gender identity, woke ideology, gender dysphoria, etc., I want to bring in on the table the story of Prince Sudyumna, which in my opinion brings a little bit more of a balanced, less rigid approach than what we typically find in, for example, Christian circles where we're often told God created only two genders and that's how it is and don't even think about messing with it and that's who you actually are. If you are born as a, as a man, you are a man. If you're born as a woman, you are a woman. The Srimad Bhagavatam, for those of you here for, for, who are here for the first time, is considered to be the creme de la creme of the Vedic or the ancient scriptures or the ancient Vedic, um, let's put it this way, the creme de la creme of the Vedic literatures. And the Vedic literatures means meaning this huge corpus of ancient texts, uh, which we could say correspond or form the basis of what's generally known as quote unquote with big quote and unquote Hinduism today. So in the first uh, chapter of Canto 9 of the Bhagavatam or the Bhagavad Purana, we hear the story of Prince Sudyumna. So listen to this story. This is, this is far out because, and keep in mind um, this rigid idea that there's only two genders and that's who you are. So according to the Bhagavatam, um, King Sudyumna was the son of, um, or Prince Sudyumna, um, well, he becomes king later on. He was the son of a king and a queen. The father wanted a son. Uh, the mother wanted a daughter. And when there was a ritual that was performed before um, the father and the mother conceived their child, the, um, the king had asked the head priest to perform or to chant some mantras in such a way that they would have a son, right? And just as the assistant of the head priest was um, throwing oblations into the sacrificial fire, as you see done in ancient India and in ancient Mesopotamia and perhaps even in Europe, the queen came up to the assistant priest who was actually throwing the oblations of rice into the fire and told him, I want, I want a daughter. <laughs> and that messed his mind up. And he basically had a different intention as he was throwing the grain of rice, which as apprentices shows us how subtle consciousness is and how affected it can be and how, how, yeah, how affected it can be and how we, as a result, have to be really careful about what we let in into our consciousness through our senses because it can have a devastating or a wonderful effect 
So this young priest or this assistant priest got kind of bamboozled mentally because of, of the queen telling him that. And as a result, as a result, she gave a uh, she gave birth to a to a daughter. Now the king, it stated, you know, was really happy to have a daughter. By the same token, you know, kings had this responsibility of lineage and begetting sons so that the dynasty can go on and so on. So he was a little disappointed. So he approached that sage and said, hey, listen, what's up? Like I, I asked you uh, for, a, for a son and you said you'd do it. And, and then how come we got a daughter? So what to do? So what happened is that this sage um, prayed to God. He prayed to God. Now, of course, in this context, we're talking about God with the name Krishna or Vishnu. So he prayed to God and and asked, like, hey, can you, you know, can can we do something? And so according to the text, which you know, devotees of Krishna or people who practice bhakti yoga accept um, as as epistemological authority just as much as Christians accept the Bible as um as their epistemological uh, authority, um God agreed. God agreed, and as a result, uh, that little girl was transformed into a boy, right? So we got one sex change right there. And that sex change, mind you, is not done by some crazy doctor and some crazy um, clinic without the supervision of the parents, which is what we see being done in America right now, which I think is insane, but that's another topic. It was done directly by God himself, right? So we see here already a big difference between this sort of rigid, like there's only two sexes and God will never change it. Like here we have a, a case where God himself, the supreme person, um, you know, changes changes the sex of, uh, of a g- girl into that of a boy. The story goes on. When this boy was a teenager, he went into a forest with some friends of his on a, on a horseback riding expedition. And that forest happened to be a forest where Lord Shiva, who's considered one of the greatest gods with a small G, not the Supreme Lord, but one of the great sort of assistant gods or sub-gods, but still one of the, if the greatest. Uh, it's stated, Yata Vaishnavadam Shambhu. Shambhu is another name for Shiva, and he's considered to be the greatest Vaishnava, the greatest devotee of God with a capital G. He, according to the story, had been there with his consort, with his wife, with his eternal a loving companion, Parvati, and when they were kind of naked, or she was at least, um, some sages walked by, some male sages, and she was really embarrassed. And so in order to uphold her honor, he declared from now on, any man who comes into this uh, forest will be turned into a woman, right? That was the curse. So what happened is that the Sudyumna, right, he, he came and, uh, and then all of a sudden he saw that he had a vagina and not a penis and he had, you know, he had breasts and he had been turned into a woman and even the horse, the male horse on which he was, you know, riding had also become uh, a female horse. And so he was like, what is going on? He looked at his friends, they also were completely turned into women. The story then goes on to say that he then went from forest to forest with his friends, um, turned now into woman, and then he uh, or she now uh, met this young sage called Buddha, uh, not the Buddha, Gautama Buddha, but another Buddha, and they fell in love with each other. And they had children together. And after some decades, somehow that girl felt like, you know, I want to go back to my original boy identity, 
Um, now remember that that's a third change because you know, born as a girl, transform into a boy, then transform into a girl in the forest, and in that under that identity, she's thinking, you know, I want to go back to my boy identity. So she goes back to the kingdom. Uh, the same sage who was asked to transform the boy or to ask God to transform the girl into a boy, um, this time prays to Lord Shiva, and Lord Shiva says, okay, fine. And he grants a boon to the effect that this girl can now become a boy. And it's concluded that she would be a boy for one month and a girl for one month. <laughs> so, and that's how, and then he, she became the king, and that's how he, she um, ruled the kingdom and that's how the story ends, right? Now, there's a little mention that people in the kingdom were not really happy uh, with, with that arrangement, and it doesn't give the details. But um, the point is this, you see, we have a case here where God himself is within one lifetime in one, you know, transforming the body, transforming the sex of a human being. And if you remember at the very beginning, I, question, I posed this question, you know, what if our real identity has nothing to do with gender? And I think that's the real lesson to be learned here. The fundamental teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, which is the second most, or if not the most important scriptural authority that people in the, in this case, the Gita really has a reach way beyond the Bhakti school and, you know, is, 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 is a form of epistemological or scriptural authority for all, all sorts of Sanatan Dharma uh, schools. How they interpret the words of Krishna is another issue, but Suffice it to say that in the Bhagavad Gita, the first lesson we learn is aham, aham brahmasmi, or the hinosminyata dehe komaram yuvacham jara, or nateva ham jatunasam. There's all these verses in the second chapter of the Gita which establish this premise that we are not our bodies. We're not, we're not man or woman. We're souls, right? And not only are we souls, we're eternal servants of God, right? Uh, as individual, what's called jivas, or individual tiny little sparks. With, with individual consciousness. And we have, according to scripture, our own original spiritual bodies in the, in the spiritual world, our eternal spiritual forms, right? Uh, that may be eternally female or eternally male or eternally that of a, a tree or a, a butterfly, and they're all spiritual forms. This is getting a little esoteric, but here, down here, where we're at right now today, the idea is that we are not our physical bodies. And so therefore, while... We're not going to, you know, play down the possibility and not just the possibility, the reality that some souls for one reason or other, you know, don't feel comfortable with the body they have or don't feel comfortable with the, you know, identifying with the particular sex of the body, you know, with the body that they have defined by the sex they have. The point is, and, and we see this here with Sudyumna, right? He, he becomes a woman and, you know, marries and after decades feels like, you know what, I don't feel comfortable as a woman, wants to come back and identify as a man. But again, we're not man, we're not woman, right? The bottom line is we're souls. So while we acknowledge that, okay, there is this gender dysphoria issue, the, the solution, the ultimate solution, the ultimate solution is to not identify with the body at all to begin with. Just like in a parallel way, when I was 19, 20, I was really debating, am I French or am I American? And that question kind of tortured me because I couldn't really, you know, find my bearing in terms of, of national identity. 
Then when I started reading the Bhagavad Gita and I started chanting Hare Krishna, which is the main practice of the of the bhakti yogis, um, I started theoretically accepting the idea and I would dare say empirically on a level of consciousness experiencing the uh, idea that I'm not this body and therefore I'm not American, I'm not French. And so in a similar way, we can say, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, right? And for that matter, I'm not gay or I'm not, I'm not straight. I'm a soul, I'm an eternal soul, right? And so if we, if we focus on that and we practice connecting with the source of our very existence, which is God, on a daily basis, and in this age of Kali, which is a, an age described again in the Vedic literatures, the worst of four ages, the age that we live in right now, the prescription found in the Vedic literatures for this age of Kali to realize and to keep uh, afresh this realization that we're not our bodies, but that we're souls, is to regularly chant together the names of God. In particular, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. So before going on to Kirk Franklin's beautiful lyrics um, of the song uh, Love Theory, let's do our little Prabhupada moment right now. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. For those of you who are here for the first time, Prabhupada, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who was born in 1896 and passed away in 1977, uh, was an extremely important historical personality in bringing or exporting or popularizing Sanatana Dharma, in particular Bhakti, the Bhakti, the Krishna Bhakti tradition, and the teachings thereof, namely the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam, which he uh, very painstakingly translated and commented upon in English. And uh, he's my uh, spiritual grandfather from a sort of a initiation perspective. And he's definitely my spiritual teacher in terms of teachings and the spiritual teacher of, uh, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people on planet Earth today. So let's look at a little short story, which he mentions in one of his lectures recorded sometime between 66 and 1977. The story called Again Become a Mouse. This is animalistic civilization. Nature gave us the opportunity to realize God. So here he's saying, God or Mother Nature gave us the opportunity as human beings, as souls in human bodies to realize God. But God, realization is meant for human being. The human being, if he does not realize God, he is simply engaged in animalistic way of life, eating, sleeping, mating. Then... If a human being only does what animals do, which according to the Bhagavad philosophy is basically eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, and if that's what human beings do and nothing else, perhaps in a more veneered or sophisticated way, right? Um, eating with forks and knives instead of just with claws and mouth, or walking or driving in airplane, I mean, driving in cars or flying in airplanes as opposed to just walking on, on four legs and so on and so on. If that's the only thing a human being does, then, um, and here's Prabhupada bringing in the story of Punar Mushikabhava, again become a mouse. Again become a mouse. 
You know the story? Punar Musika Bhava. There is a story, which is a very uh, nice story. One rat, a mouse, he came to a saintly person. A saintly, everyone comes to a saintly person for some blessing. You see? Here he's making a little remark. So there's a mouse, right, who goes to a saintly person asking for a blessing. But he makes an interesting remark. He says, people go to saintly people, especially you see this in India. Like there's this culture of, you know, an ordinary person approaching what's called a sadhu or a saintly person and asking for a blessing. We also get that sort of in in the European Judeo-Christian tradition, although there's a strong, you know, Protestant ethos that, no, there's, you know, there's... There's no intermediary, there's no saints, so it's only Jesus or whatever. But the point is, you know, what are we asking God for, right? And he's making a little jive here that, you know, a lot of times we ask for, for material things from God, right? Real blessing they don't want, some material blessing. Real blessing Krishna they don't want. If you give him some blessing that you become very rich man and these are very, very much pleased. You give him a blessing, oh, you'll become really, really rich. Oh, yeah, well, they love that blessing. But, you know, pure devotion to God, that's another thing. So this mouse also came and begged the saintly person, Sir, I'm in difficulty. If you give me some blessings, now what is that? Now, the cat chases after me always. I'm very unhappy. So what do you want? Now, if you make me a cat, then I can get relief from this. All right, you become cat. So you get it? I'm not sure if you understand the accent, but you can get used to it. So he's asking the saint, please help me. Why? Well, I'm, I'm, there's this cat who always bothers me. Okay, well, what do you want? Well, make me into a cat. And so the saintly person says, okay, I'll transform you into a cat. So he became cat. So after a few days, again he comes. Sir, again I'm in trouble. What is that? The dog is chasing. <laughs> So what's the problem this time? Well, now there's a dog that's chasing me. Uh, don't laugh. You're serious. A dog is chasing. All right, then what do you want? Nah, make me a tiger. Uh, all right, you become a tiger. So you follow the the saintly person says, "You want to become a tiger? Okay, fine. I'll transform you. I'll transform you into a tiger." So when he became a tiger. He was staring on the saintly person like this. So, so now, you know, now that the tiger, well, now that the mouse has become a tiger, the tiger starts looking at the saintly person with hunger, like, I'm going to eat you now. He asked, why you are staring upon me? You want to eat me? Yes. So he again starts saying, again you become mouse. So when the tiger confirmed, yes, I want to eat you. Then the sage said, all right, then Punar Mushikabhava again become a mouse and transformed the tiger back into a mouse. Again you become mouse. So that is our position. We are advanced in civilization. Now we want to kill God. So he is very profound, right? Seeing... We got to where we are in terms of modern technology, civilization, everything by the grace of God. And then we come to atheism, basically, where, you know, where we want to kill God, as he says. So we are again going to be uncivilized, to remain in the forest and to remain naked. Actually, they're practicing the nature. So now, you know, he's saying, so, so as a result, 
I mean, I don't know if he's foreboding some sort of general collapse of civilization. You know, he wasn't much of a prepper kind of type, but the idea is, you know, okay, you, you pride comes before the fall in some way or, or, or other. Just like, so again, we are going to be aborigines. Again, we're going to be ab aborigines. Of course, some aborigines, we could say, are more civilized than, you know, than the veneered uh, animals in suits and ties of today. And that is being practiced. Uh, they are going to the forest, they remain naked. So actually, Pular again become mouse. So here we go with Prabhupada's moment. Um, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. So now let's uh, finish our little episode today. Uh, I promised you we'd look at um, a fantastic song by um, by our friend, by our hero, Kirk Franklin. Um, there's a song that came out a couple of years ago called Love Theory. And, um, and I want to read to you the lyrics and we'll listen to a few seconds of it, praying that we're not going to get... Um, you know, sanctioned because of copyright infringement. So here's the lyrics to this song by Kirk Franklin, Love Theory. It goes like this. So the chorus goes, No greater love makes my heart beat. All I want to do is make you proud of me. And here's the chorus. I don't want to love nobody but you. I don't want to love nobody but you. I don't want to love nobody. Love nobody but you. <laughs> so we can take uh, we can take inspiration from this, right? We can take inspiration from this song that um, that there really is nothing out there um, than than love. There's there's no greater love. There's no greater love that makes one's heart beat than love for God, right? And if we make that love of God shine within our relationships. If we make that love, if we somehow pray to be a conduit, right, a transparent via media of that affection, of that kindness, of that love that comes originally from God and that can shine through us uh, to our children, to our wife, to our husband, to our work colleagues, to, to people we meet in the street or whatever, to every interaction we have with others, um, then we can remain happy and we can continue to make uh, the world a happier place, right? So thank you for listening. Uh, let us stay in touch on the spiritual platform by, uh, by always uh, staying close to, to Scripture and by staying close to chanting uh, God's holy name. And, um, and if we do that repeatedly, repeatedly on a daily basis, then uh, we can be uh, confident that, um, that you know, we'll, um, we'll be happy. We'll be as happy as we can uh, in this life. And... Um, we can hope to be happier and happier as the years go by. Thank you and talk to you next time. <laughs>